Blog Talk Radio. Archangels, Ghosts, and Bigfoot, oh my, it's just another night for Supernatural Girls. Real stories, real answers to life's biggest supernatural mysteries. And now, for another exciting interview with paranormal experts from this world and others, here's your host, paranormal researcher Patricia Baker, on the one, the only, Supernatural Girls. Welcome, everyone, to another exciting episode of Supernatural Girls Radio. I'm your host, Patricia Baker, and unfortunately, PK is unavailable again this evening. As you know, she has been going through some health issues, and she did have surgery. I know everybody wants to know what's going on. She did have back surgery on Monday. They uh, promised her, the doctors did, that she was going to come out of that surgery like a new woman and basically get up and walk away, and that is not what happened. So she is at home still recuperating and still appreciating all your healing prayers. So I will keep you updated on how she's feeling. I'm hoping that we will have her back for next week's show with Michelle Clare, the medium from Arizona, and she is going to be doing live readings for all of you. So another early Christmas gift, and I'm hoping you'll be able to join us. But tonight, here we are, the night before Thanksgiving, and you're probably at home either baking pies or just relaxing, getting ready for your big turkey day. And got a great guest. This is a very talented man, talented and knowledgeable. He's an adventurer, and he's going to be talking to us about what in the world is going on in Antarctica. Now, as you may recall, we had John D'Souza, the former FBI agent, on several years back talking about Antarctica, but then everything seemed to close down. There wasn't any more information coming out. We had basically heard it all from John, and then I heard that our guest tonight has been to Antarctica and has information new and some of the historical stuff that we need to hear about right from him. His name is Brad Olson, and he is hes amazing. He's an author of 10 books, including three in his Esoteric series, the latest one being Beyond Esoteric. He's an award-winning author, a book publisher, an event producer, and he's done keynote presentations and interviews all over the world. He's been at Contact in the Desert, UFO Mega Conference, the 5D events, and so many other big radio shows, etc. He's been on television as well, including on Ancient Aliens, America Unearthed, Beyond Belief, Book of Secrets, The Truth is Out There, and Mysteries of the Outdoors. Now, he's also a founder and co-producer of the How Weird Street Fair in the Soma neighborhood of San Francisco. And he's a Chicago native, and his esoteric writings continue to reach a wide audience while he is breaking ground in alternative journalism, 
public speaking, illustration, and photography. So, Brad, welcome to the show. Hey, Patricia. Thanks for having me on. It's good to be with the Supernatural Girl. Yes, in the singular tonight, but that's okay. (laughs) I know PK would love to be here, but she loves this topic as much as I do. But as I mentioned, there's very little information that we've been able to get over the last several years. So I'm thrilled to have you here tonight. And I'm also so interested to know that you've actually been there. You're not just talking out of your hat. You've been there. You've been exploring. So tell us, how did you get involved with this part of the world? Sure. Well, I do travel quite a bit. And three years ago, had the opportunity and the money and time to go down to South America first, where I was with my partner at the time, Emily Infinity, and she and I flew into Santiago, Chile, where I bought a Ford Expedition, and it was fully outfitted for overland travel. The previous owner just drove it down from Quebec, Canada, and in a roundabout way, he was having a hard time selling this vehicle because it had Quebec, Canada plates. And so we just threw caution to the wind and bought it with cash straight up. And the first border we got to about two weeks later was Peru, and we got over. So that was a big wow, milestone, was suggesting that we could make it the whole way. And then so met up with uh, – Nassim Harriman and Brian Forrester in Peru and Bolivia, and I was one of the speakers on that trip with 150 people. It was a great trip and still friends with a lot of the people on that trip. And then uh, we struck off again solo through Bolivia and then all the way down Argentina, which is a very big country. It's the eighth largest in size in the world and very, very long, right along the spine of the Andes Mountains until we got to Ushuaia, Argentina, right around uh, New Year's Eve, and inquired around about, originally it was going to be a cruise trip, but the crews were all booked up till February, and so uh, we got a tip from a travel agent, said, hey, why don't you go to the other pier where the yachts are, and we did, and met a captain who had a spot for two, and um, went to a New Year's Eve party with him on New Year's Eve. And that's when my line of questioning began because there were other sea captains there and other people who were crewing ships about what's down in Antarctica. And I had all these big mysteries. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what might be under the ice and why are the elites going down there and pyramids poking through and et cetera, et cetera. And this is when I first started getting some feedback and some insight into what was down there. And of course, Got on the sailboat trip in mid-January. It was a 26-day trip. We lived on the boat. And, uh, boy, it was a rough passage across the Drake Passage to get there. Uh, got violently seasick. Um, Ooh, lost a bunch of weight. Even. I think I lost 25 pounds on that trip. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Just... Wow. <laughs> yeah, it, it was a while. But, uh, but I can't I imagine there, being on a sailboat like that and having a, a big storm hit. That must have been difficult. It was pretty frightening, and Emily Infinity thought we were uh, goners. And she was in the bunk above me, and, and for several days 
we were in such rough seas, all you could do is just lay there. And we were holding Ugh. hands with each other, and she's thinking, oh, we're done. I said, Emily, oh, I've, I've sailed with my dad before, and I know if the boat is not taking on water, we're just going to ride through it. And that's what happened, and we didn't take on any water. And, and we finally got to uh, one of the outer islands. They call them Pan-Antarctic Islands. This one is called St. George Island, where uh, mm-hmm. a Polish base called Arktowski is located. And the boat we were on is actually from Gdansk, Poland. It's a Polish vessel oh. with a Polish crew and mostly uh, Polish uh, guests who were on there. It was just Emily, myself, and one other American and 11 Poles. So the 14 of us arrived at St. Uh, George Island and went ashore. And boy, did that feel good to feel terra firma. And they <laughs> let us take a shower. Yeah. We shared oh, meals nice. with them. And everywhere we went, and we went to several other research stations, we came with uh, fresh fruit and vegetables. And you can't imagine what a gift that is to give to a crew that hasn't really had it. They're kind of eating out of cans. So they would invite us in, and and we had a great time with the Polish uh, hosts of Arkowski. And then eventually went on and continued our trip, which was basically a new adventure every day, either sailing through a narrow fjord and seeing glaciers calving into the ocean to massive colonies of penguins. And you can just <laughs> get on the dinghy and go ashore and kind of walk among them. And there, there's really uh, no restrictions, so to speak, when you're there. And, I, and I, I should preface it by saying that a lot of people say, oh, you can't go to Antarctica. There's all these rules and restrictions. Well, parts of it are like that, but other parts where we were, I think it's the more touristy area, and there was nothing to stop yeah. us from just jumping on the dinghy and going ashore, yeah. Yeah, because that's what we've heard. We've heard it's very restricted, and you'll be met with military, and so it's nice to know that there's still some areas you can get to and enjoy. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's primarily where we were, which was the northern tip of the Palmer Peninsula, and we eventually got ashore and stepped foot on the Antarctica continent. And uh, every day, like I said, was a different adventure, visiting another research station or um, just sailing into uh, a volcanic crater called Deception Island. That was quite a thrill. Um, there are old whaling stations from the 19th century that, that were destroyed by a later eruption and just the, the desolateness and the remoteness and just not seeing other people for days on end really uh, drove home how isolated it is down there and really how remote this part of the world is. You always think the world's so overpopulated. There's people on top of each other everywhere. Well, not down there. And just now, the new season has begun, and until then, there was only a 1,000 people on the entire continent, and that's just like the skeleton crew and the year-round bases. So think about mm-hmm. that. The fifth largest continent on the planet, there's only a 1,000 people there on the whole continent. Yeah, that's wild. Very wild. Yeah. <laughs> so you must have heard a lot of stories. We've heard a lot of yes. stories in the past from John, like we heard the John Kerry story, 
and things about giants and uh, giants waking up, but not a lot of detail recently. So what did you find out when you were there and you spoke to these sea captains and other people? Sure. Well, John D'Souza is a colleague of mine. I know him well, and uh, I think he's a very honest broker of the truth and what he knows. Talking about Antarctica, it's kind of like talking about Mars. It's a place that we're all really fascinated with, but it's so far away that you kind of go on what you hear. And Mm -hmm. so I've heard quite a few things about giants and stasis and what uh, might be going on with under ice bases there and why John Kerry was really going down there, which, by the way, he was there. And I I do a presentation called The Hidden Anomalies of Antarctica, and I show all the elite that went down in this time frame of 2015 and 2016. And it was just this big block of elites going down at this particular time because when we were there, it was was already uh, passé. They had already come and gone. So it kind mm-hmm. of makes you wonder what was that particular period of time all about. And I have pieced together uh, some information about the Ark of Gabriel. Have you ever heard about that one? No. Tell us about that. Sure. Well, it's similar in concept to the Ark of the Covenant, which is this high-tech device that, well, in the Ark of the Covenant is recorded in the Bible that if you looked at it the wrong way or you mishandled it, you'd get shocked. It, it, it has it's a repository of great energy. And, and this is what the Ark of Gabriel was. So around uh, 2015, you may recall in the, histor- in, in, in the news there was a stampede in Mecca where hundreds of people supposedly got stampeded to death. Uh, Mm -hmm. But just prior to that, just a few weeks earlier, there was another incident where a crane collapsed and a few dozen people were killed. Well, those are just cover stories for the uncovering of this Ark of Gabriel, which was in possession of great power. And it took the crane down and it killed the excavators and then it – they tried to get it out again and that's when the hundreds of people died. So – uh, Saudi Arabia being the largest tourism pilgrimage location in the world is Mecca, knew they had to get rid of this thing. And they didn't really know what to do or how to get rid of it. So they consulted leaders around the world. And of all people, Russia and Vladimir Putin said, we know how to get rid of it. We'll get rid of it for you. And it is in the historic record that a fleet of Russian ships went to Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, and that's when they loaded up this Ark of Gabriel and took it down to no other than the new Schwabenland area and deposited it in an old German bunker, as the narrative goes. So then the very following year, yeah, this is the very following year, the Patriarch Krill of the Eastern Orthodox Church not only stops to see the Pope Francis in Cuba on his way, which never happens. Those two are kind of like arch religious rivals. And, but this mm-hmm. case they met and then Patriarch Krill, this elderly old man. And I'll tell you, travel in Antarctica is difficult. He goes down to Antarctica to bless a chapel. 
which is about the size of a walk-in closet. She goes to all that trouble to bless an Orthodox chapel in Antarctica. That's the cover story. But the real story is he was going there to get this Ark of Gabriel uh, locked and sealed up in an old German bunker. And to the best of my knowledge, that's where it exists to this day, way far out of range to create any kind of problems again. So that's why Peter Krill was there. But interestingly, the same following years when all the other elites were going down there as well. Let me back up a minute with you. How did they find the Ark of Gabriel? It sounds like something they found fairly recently. Right, they did. So that would have been in the 2014-2015 range, just excavating around. Um, if you know the what Mecca looks like, there's the Kaaba, which is a central big black box, which can contains a black meteorite inside it and occasionally uh, some elite pilgrims can actually touch it there's like a an opening you reach through and touch the actual black meteorite and that's why mecca is where it is and that's why every single muslim prays towards mecca because they have this this black meteorite so as they build up around mecca hotels and the actual mosque itself that surrounds it. I, I suppose they were just doing some excavating or had been scanning around there and saw something under there. And when they tried to excavate it, that's when the crane collapsed and and people uh, started to die. And so you can't have that in your number one tourist spot in the no, country. No, you can't. And, but you're describing... There. That it's now in a in a small bunker somewhere, so it can't be a very big, huge device. It's not something massive. It sounds like it's something that you can transport fairly, fairly easily. Of course, if it doesn't kill you. But does anybody know what it looks like? Uh, I would imagine similar to the Ark of the Covenant, and there are images uh, related to the biblical description of it where. Four people would carry it on four poles, almost like pallbearers who carry mm-hmm. it. Uh, I know some of my colleagues on Ancient Aliens have said that it would fit into the sarcophagus in the king's chamber, and that was uh, that was one of the reception uh, receptacles of the Ark of the Covenant. So I would imagine the Ark of Gabriel would be similar, if not the same in proportions. So probably the size of a small casket. Uh-huh. God, it sounds like this should be like a movie. It's it's such oh, an incredible yeah. story. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So this thing is, is locked to, away. Right. <laughs> in in New Schwabenland, in the old German bases of the, the New Berlin base, or uh, base 211, as it was called on the maps of the Third Reich, who were down there pre-World War II, claiming the area so this is kind of an interesting tie around to my trip is when i was in the yacht harbor for new year's eve i was talking to a sea captain who had been down there many times in fact had explored around the new schwabenland area and he says he was looking for these these big darts that the germans dropped and they were land claims so when they flew around this area they were just dropping these these two meter meter and a half darts with a 
swastika flag on it. And he, he was the sea captain didn't find one, but he said uh, it, it's a very mysterious area. All the mountain ranges are named, have German names. And mm-hmm. this particular area where they their base is near this location called the Schumacher Ponds, which never freeze. So there's geothermal activity all throughout Antarctica. In fact, it is the most volcanically active continent in the world, including a fault line that goes straight through the New Schwabenland area and then right up the mid-Atlantic Ridge in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, which is a volcanic mountain range under the ocean. Well, it starts right there in Antarctica and the huh. Schumacher Pass. Yeah, so I know where Gosh. the base is located. If I were ever to go back, I'd go back with a, a film crew, and I would prefer I would choose to go to this this new Schwabenland area and, and try to find the old bases, the old German base. I don't know about the Ark of Gabriel. That might be a little problematic. Yeah. But finding traces of the, the German base, would I think, would be really fascinating and historic. It would be, yes. Well, uh, there's just so much that has already happened there that we don't know about but then it it, there's a lot that's been talked about these giants that are supposedly there in stasis what did you find out about the giants yeah i've heard there were big stairs staircases made for giants and doorways made for giants what did you find out about them and i do do a talk about giants one of my uh presentations at conferences so i'm very fascinated with this whole subject and in stasis means that they're not dead, but they're still alive, but in a very deep meditative state. You might have seen recently that um, in Tibet, some Chinese authorities thought they found a mummy in a cave. And it was actually a very old monk who was in a state of stasis. He was just <laughs> so deep into this meditation, whether it was self-induced in his case or medically induced kind of like a coma state, but you're still alive. And this is what supposedly these giants are. Now, let me preface it by saying that prove, and I don't know for sure, that that there are these giants down there in stasis and that they're waking up now and this is going to change the the global uh, landscape because they have an agenda and they may be Anunnaki is the backstory in that. But I can tell you this, that as the most, volcanically active continent in the world, the polar plateau down in Antarctica and East Antarctica is two miles of ice. Okay. So Antarctica is a desert continent. It is the highest elevation continent because of that two mile sheet of ice. So with the volcanic and geothermal activity warming up the bottom part of the continent, you have the propensity for very large under ice caverns. And those those under ice caverns would be shielded from the storms on the surface and the very negative below temperatures. And they could actually be kind of comfortable um, as we would prefer the weather to be up here in the climates we're at. So the right. propensity for these giants or for even people, some of these secret bases to exist, is very high. In fact, I know of several of these under 
ice massive chambers, one of which over Lake Vostok, which is the in the top ten largest freshwater lakes in the world that nobody's ever heard about. And the Russians finally drilled down there. They have a base right above it. Uh, in 2012, they punctured through, and then 2016, they got a clean uh, sample out of the lake and found a kind of bacteria that's never been known before. They think comes off a fish that is as yet uh-huh. uh, discovered. So the propensity for life existing that has not been discovered yet, and these giant under ice domes, as well as a fresh water and heat source, do exist in Antarctica. And so I suppose that's what fuels a lot of these different conspiracies about what's going on down there, because you have the recipe or the making for what could be uh, these hidden bases there. Yeah. And, but let's go back to the giants again. Why would they be in a meditative state? What's the purpose of that? Why, why wouldn't they just leave or, you know, have a, have an active life there because they've been hidden away for so long. Right. And and it could be, again, technology induced. Maybe they're in some kind of cocoon or, or something that has kept them in a, a sleeping state without aging or deteriorating. Why now? I don't know. Maybe it's the age we live in perhaps or, yeah, because we also did hear, and I'm sure you know this story, that at one point there was like a red alert that went off, um, and the the base was, the military base area was completely cleared. They got everybody out. They were scared to death of something. The rumor was that it was one of these beings was waking up, or coming out of stasis, I should say, and so they got everybody out of there. Um which base was that, McMurdo? Um, there's uh, the only thing I know about it is it was a military base. There were military, not just ours, but from other countries that were there. And specifically okay. regarding these large beings in stasis, and they had quite a military presence in this area. And then this happened. So we've heard a lot of stories, weird. Stories like the film crew, also that went there, went yeah. to some part of Antarctica and never came back. Yep. And then there was footage that the production company—they did find footage, but they wouldn't return it to the production company. So we've heard that story also. And other stories of missing scientists, and then they turn up yes. two weeks later, but they don't want right. to talk about their experiences and. The giant hole in the ice near the South Pole. Now, that one has some legs behind it because there is a big no-fly zone area near the South Pole. It's about one degree away. So South Pole being 90 degrees south, it's at 89 degrees. So uh, uh, several miles away, of course. But it's interesting that one of the elites that was down there about eight years ago was uh, Prince Harry. And he went down with some of his army buddies. He went to the South Pole, and then they just went cross-country skiing to the 89th degree. 
but there's supposed to be nothing down there on the polar plateau. It would just be flat ice and windstorm. So why would they spend a week cross-country skiing in nothingness unless they were going right. to see this giant hole in the ice, which is approximately where they were going on their trip? Yeah. So that and, would kind of tie into that one. What is what do you think's there? Why are they don't why do they not want people flying over? They don't want them to see something. Well, the cover story is it's for the ice cube experiments going on at the South Pole and one of my colleagues is Eric Hecker and he was just at the five D conference in Vegas a few weeks ago as a speaker and so was I. And we compared notes and I drove him to the airport and we're really good friends. And so in his presentation he's making a case that the ice cube experiment is really a giant Harper ray, as he says, on steroids. And it can be used to control weather and a whole number of other things. So the cover story is they don't want people flying over because they're doing weather tests and uh, just even a little exhaust from an airplane would mess up their instruments but um, mm -hmm. he thinks and, and I would agree that it's really a cover for the hole in the ice now the hole in the ice this is reported all the way back to Admiral Byrd in his diaries and he was the, the first to fly over the South Pole and approximately one degree to the uh, towards the Davis base this is where Brian S one of Linda Moulton Howe whistleblowers located it precisely because he had to do an emergency evacuation, defied orders to go through the no-fly zone, flew through it, and saw the hole. And so did Admiral right. Byrd. And he said in his diary, it's so big, approximately about 40 or 50 miles across, so huge, way up on the polar plateau. So it could just be a big volcanic hole in the ice. But Admiral Byrd felt confident enough to fly into the hole circle around and come back out. But what he saw down there was megaflora, megafauna that shouldn't be existing in such a inhospitable climate. So, but maybe there is a volcanic activity in supporting some kind of life down there. Sounds like it. But I, I mean, according to Admiral Byrd, it's, it's quite possible. Yeah. Quite probable yeah. even. Right. Oh, quite probable, and not only at the South Pole, but other locations do have big gaping holes in the polar plateau due to volcanic activity. Now, what about UFOs? Have they been spotted coming in and out of that hole in the ice? Is that one of the things that they don't want people to see? Well, so that's what's so interesting about the hole itself, is that it could be some kind of portal or entranceway. And so I was talking to Eric Hecker about the NSA, no such agency, uh, the agency <laughs> that has been largely tasked with following anything UFO related. In fact, mm -hmm. they have a building at McMurdo, the largest American base, largest base of any country in Antarctica, an NSA building that nobody knows what's going on in there. Nobody's allowed in and, and no signs or anything. And Eric Hecker was telling me, oh, the NSA is all over the uh, South Pole base. They're pretty much running the ice cube operation and other things related, also guarding the hole. And Brian S. said that when he flew over it, 
um, just a few years ago, saw um, not only tracks leading from the Amundsen-Scott South Pole Station, but uh, uh, like a rampway, a roadway dropping down into it where the tracks led. So they could take a snowcat in and out of there, too, can go in by uh, road. Of course, it's totally uh, withheld, and Eric Hecker never saw it. Didn't even hear of other people talking about it, but that's not to say he didn't think it existed. He just, it's very top secret there. Uh, and other locations with UFOs, Brian S. told Linda Moulton Howe that over the Beardmore Glacier, he saw UFOs, silver discs flying around. And incidentally, other whistleblowers that Linda Moulton Howe had called uh, Spartan 1 and Spartan 2 said that on the Beardmore Glacier was where there was a craft that they went into, a giant octagon-shaped assault black craft is how they described oh it. And it, was, hmm. and, and, it, and it was activated with their mental abilities. So it, 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 could, it could communicate telepathically with Spartan 1 and Spartan 2, according to them. So that, that, the Beardmore Glacier seems to be the hot spot. And the Beardmore Glacier is, incidentally, a very historic location because that is up where um, Amundsen, on his journey to the South Pole, traveled up and across to beat the Scott Party by 35 days. So it's a historically well-known area, and at the very top of the Beardmore, not far away from where Spartan 1 and 2 said that the big basalt craft was, is uh, Mount Buckley. And Mount Buckley has a lot of, of fossils, including ferns, and there are even dinosaur bone deposits, some dinosaurs that have only been found in Antarctica. No other location, proving that it had once been a hot, sweltering, tropical climate to be able to support ferns and, and dinosaurs. So yeah. uh, one of the reasons the Scott party, all five of them died on their return trip. One of the reasons why is they're collecting all these fossils. So they all these rocks they're carrying back on their sleds, they're pulling and they got hit by a storm and ran out of supplies. And uh, Scott himself and, the four other people in this party all perished on the ice, on the Ross oh, ice shelf. What a way to go. Bodies remain to this day. Yeah. Oh, my God. Sad story. Jeez. Just showing how harsh it is down there and can't. Oh, take yeah, it is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And again, so much going on down there between the spacecraft flying in and out and around and about. Also, because the ice is melting in some areas, it, we've heard about crafts being exposed. Um, that weren't seen before, and large alien faces that weren't seen before. And, again, the multi-military presence gives you pause because it's like, well, what the heck are they doing down there if there isn't something supernatural happening that they're keeping an eye on? Yeah, I don't believe these stories either about they're doing this ice cube testing or whatever the heck it is. Um, and it's guarded. It's not like they'd welcome you with open arms and say, hi, Brad Olson, come on in, let's show you around. They won't. So what are they hiding? Yeah. What are they hiding? And and all those are very valid 
questions as well as archaeological digs where they're supposedly finding the bodies of giants and megalithic structures. Um, I've pinpointed three locations, pyramids poke through the ice. And uh, one, of, one of them is near the ocean, close to the McMurdo base. And Eric Hecker was showing me some maps and, and photos uh, that he had brought back and just kind of giving me a one-on-one in his hotel room. And I, I was looking at this long scroll of uh, like a 360-degree panoramic not far away from the uh, McMurdo base. And one of the indications on the map just said pyramid. And there's a pyramid-shaped mountain. And so one of the pyramids is down there. Another one is in the Shackleton Range. That's the more popular one that probably most of your listeners have seen pictures of that casts that perfect triangle shadow. And it's poking up through the uh, ice. So I, I talked to a travel company down in uh, Punta Arenas, Chile, after I got back. And I even went to their other office in Salt Lake City, Utah, when when I got back to the States, to talk to them about doing a customized trip. And, in fact, you can go anywhere you want, according to them. You got a budget, you got enough money, we'll fly you anywhere. And one of the places wow. they go That's exciting. is to leave from Punta Arenas, Chile, on planes, and they'll fly to the Palmer Peninsula to a location called the Union Glacier. And from the Union Glacier, then they can take off on other trips. The most popular being is the Vincent Massif, which is the tallest mountain in Antarctica. It's like 14,500 feet. But there are a lot of people that climb all the highest mountains on all seven continents. And so they got to go down to Antarctica and do Vincent Massif. Uh, and as they're flying there, they'll go right by the Shackleton Range and see this pyramid. So I showed them my pictures, including some other shots I had of craft under the ice. And I mean, kind of looking at them, not really poo-pooing them or saying no way, but just that he called the pyramid a nun attack, which just means an attractive hmm. mountain poking through the ice. And I said, well, if you don't think it was a uh, pyramid built by something or someone, yeah. Um, it was just a rock. Then, did you ever go down and investigate or climb it or take a sample? He's like, no, we never did that. We just fly over it. And we call it an attack. So, I think the jury's still out on those pyramids. But uh, yeah, it sounds that way. Up. Yeah, so that could be another possible excursion with a film. It sounds team. like a good one for you, Brad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it sounds like it's a little bit better than the uh the boat. So yeah. again, we're I'm I'm drawn very much to any civilization that is still there and what they may be hiding around it, given that they want us to believe a certain kind of history and they don't want us to know the truth. So they're they've been feeding us this history about no giants here and all of that for a long time. As well as the yeah. fact that they they feel that dinosaurs and people didn't exist at the same time when we have artifacts in Mexico that say a whole different story. So John Kerry, he went down there 
What was he doing there? Yeah, and his timing was quite interesting because the period he was there was right during the 2016 elections. You'd think he'd have uh, more pressing matters to deal with up in uh, America helping his party win the presidency in which they lost to Donald Trump. Instead, the Secretary of State is down in Antarctica. And I have a friend who works at McMurdo, and um, he wasn't there at the time, but I've asked him about the John Kerry visit, and he said some of his colleagues remember it well. It was one of the biggest things, the highest-ranking political figure ever to visit Antarctica. And so he flew into McMurdo, and there's pictures of him getting off a plane there, these big cargo planes that fly in and land on the ice. And then he went missing for a couple of days. He went on whatever appointed trip he went on. To the press, he said, I'm a climate champion, and I'm down in Antarctica studying climate change. Really? <laughs> then how can yeah. you tell anybody where you went for a few days? So right. there are, again, there is the propensity for these very large under-ice geothermic domes that are heated and and not so uncomfortable. You just have to know how to get into them. And so John Kerry went somewhere for several days and then came back and then flew back. And by then the election was already over. So the thing, the alternative view is, now he wasn't really there doing climate change. I mean, climate's changing all the no, way around the world. Why do you have to go to Antarctica? Yeah, I mean, you can't believe but, anything so, he says anyways. But what John exactly. DeSouza told us was that with Kerry, he he went down there apparently to meet with, this is what John said, uh, one of these entities, one of these large giants or some type of alien being that was in charge. And mm. this, what John told us was that this being really hated John hated him and said, don't ever come back here again. And that when he took off from New Zealand, there was an earthquake, which was a message to him that this alien or whomever it was meant business. So anyways, that was what John D'Souza told us. It's quite interesting. And, and I don't and know. And the fact that, that, that John Kerry was down there on election day and perhaps was delivering some uh, not-too-appealing news that Donald Trump would be the next president of the U.S. and uh, getting his marching orders, so to speak, and saying, well, this is the new reality. What do you want me to do about it? And probably uh, meeting some resistance that uh, they never thought she'd but, lose didn't make it into but, presidency. But again, what it, it just begs the question, what does – what does is this tie in with these aliens? Because we can speculate that they wanted Hillary. I maybe they didn't. Maybe they just didn't want Kerry there and mm. thought he was an idiot. Um, maybe they didn't really care who was going to lead the United States, but they certainly didn't want Kerry to come back, is what John told us. That he was seen as such a disgusting uh person that it he was banned and banished don't ever come back here again, kind of uh, kind of a litany. So I, I found that fascinating because he's no, he's no friend to the American people, that's for sure. 
And right, <clears throat> yeah, he's just you know an opportunist. So it's uh, it's it's just interesting. I just keep asking. Okay, so there are these entities there. I have no doubt. I, maybe more than one alien race is there. There's certainly these giants and stasis that have been talked about repeatedly. What are their plans? And and what are they doing there? They've obviously been there for a long time. And they're keeping a low profile right. from humans, from us. But I don't know. What what are they going to do going forward? And, again, how long do these, these giants stay in stasis before they decide to come out? And then what are they going to do? It's just so interesting. It really is. And, again, if you wanted to find a place on the continental uh, land side of this planet, and keep in mind that really Earth is an ocean planet. It's 71% covered with water. So the continental landmass is only 29% of the surface of this planet. So the land is actually kind of sparse. And so here's a continent with only 1,000 people living on the surface during the winter months. So if you wanted to hide away somewhere, I can't think of a better place than Antarctica or perhaps the depths of the ocean, but that offers its challenges too. So if you are in a state of stasis or perhaps in an old craft, and in my presentation, Hidden Anomalies of Antarctica, I'll show some of the best photos and images of where some of these craft may be including, which I consider the best evidence of all, supposedly there are three massive motherships named by the NSA, the nickname Nina, Pinta, and Santa Maria after the <laughs> Columbus wow. trips. Yeah, that's yeah. And I think one of those three exists in the new Schwabenland area, and it pokes up through the ice as the ice is melting seasonally, it can be seen on Google Earth. And in 2013, if you go back in the Wayback Machine, it's actually a base, a German base called Konen, K-O-N-H-E-N. And they excavate there uh, on occasion. The last time they did was 2013. And you can see this machine under the ice, some kind of defunct machine. And some of the remote viewers from the Farsight Institute Courtney Brown is the head of yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Yeah, they, so they did, they remote viewed this particular location and said it was some kind of massive machine under the ice, didn't work anymore, but had been there for a very long time. Uh, so it could be that the Giants are in another one of these in another location. Maybe this one in the Schwabeland. I, I don't know. But it's interesting that with Giants, you have quite a few that have been found around the world, including these elongated skull giants, which have a cranium 30% larger than humans. And down in South America, I, I saw some of them. We we're in the Sacred Valley outside of Cusco, and there was a little museum there with an elongated mummy on display right there to see. And I even yeah, met the uh, guy who found it. Yeah, there it is. And down in uh, Paracas, Peru, there's a whole museum with a dozen skulls, these massive elongated skulls of presumably from giants, you know, bigger head, bigger body, right? So who are these giants? 
Well, I would I would propose to say that they're they're probably Anunnaki. That they're human like, mm-hmm. but they're not human. And there's so many things just about the skulls alone that you could say are well, they're not human. They don't have the uh, central suture, that crack that goes up through between our forehead and then up to the top of our skull. These yes. elongated don't have that suture. Uh, their eye sockets are 30% bigger than ours, and and the base of where the spinal cord reaches the skull is totally different than humans are. So even though they had hair, even red hair is sometimes preserved on one of the skulls in Paracas, um, probably looked very human-like, but of course they were different. So this mm-hmm. might be what those giants are, that there might be some remnants down there kept alive in stasis, either through the power of meditation, like this old Tibetan that was just found, still alive, but able to do it with his own mental abilities or perhaps Mm -hmm. assisted with uh, technology, sort of like in the movies, the way they show people going on long space trips and going into a hibernation pod and then waking up uh, many years or decades later. Could be something like that. But yeah, Yeah, the fact that there's giants being found dead and alive down there and perhaps confronting John Kerry over the election uh, just adds a little uh, fodder to the fire. Yeah, in terms of who are they and what are they going, you know, what are their plans? But you mentioned giants everywhere. There is a story of a giant here in Massachusetts, and he was like a cannibal. He would eat people. He was huge, and he had like shark type of teeth, you know, like several rows of teeth. But they did find a body that supported the stories. That in fact, and he had red hair. That's what made me think of it. Is when you mentioned the red hair ah. that they found on, on some of them. But yeah, that, you're right. These these uh, these giants were not just in Antarctica. Just not just in one place. There were a lot of different places that their skeletons have turned up. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Speaking of <laughs> more red mystery, giants, more mystery right out here uh, on the west side of uh, North America. I was doing one of my books is called Sacred Places North America. I also feature the giants in my esoteric series, including my new book, Beyond Esoteric Escaping Prison Planet, where I have images of the massive size of these skulls. Uh, But out here in Nevada, there is a place called Lovelock, Nevada. It's right along Interstate I-80. And there's the Lovelock Cave. And you can almost see it from the highway. It's only about 15, 20 miles away. And I've driven out there and checked it out. And there they found giants in Lovelock Cave with red hair. Once again, this common uh, hair theme. And this was a big sensation about 100 years ago when they discovered not only uh, dozens of mummified giants in the Lovelock Cave, but size 18 sandals and uh, duck decoy and and so many things that they made out of reed, which grew in a lake, which expand the whole northern part of Nevada. It was called Lake Lahotian. And it was during the last ice age that Lake Lahotian was about 100 feet up. And if you drive across northern Nevada, you can see all the striations 
in the, the mountainsides where the different lake levels had risen and fallen. And one common denominator is there are several caves which would have been on the banks of Lake Lahotian where they have found giants. There's another one called Spirit Cave, and I, I'm in my uh, catalog of to-go places to check that one out because there, again, giants were found, and then a couple other locations, too, that are less known and harder to find. But uh, this Lovelock Cave, there are there's a museum in Winnemucca, Nevada, and I've been in there before, and a couple of the artifacts. This is so distinct. Uh, these artifacts that were found in the cave, they, they, they matched no other Native American, which include the Paiute Indians, who have an oral history, similar to your story in Massachusetts, of fighting these cannibalistic giants and finally trapping them in the Lovelock Cave and collapsing the cave and then lighting fires and suffocating them. And that's how they finally wow. killed them. Yeah, Sarah Winnemucca was uh, from the Paiute family, and she wrote a book called My Life with the Paiutes in 1850 and describes the oral history that was passed down of the Paiute Indian struggle with the giants and then finally killing them because they were picking off Paiutes and eating them. So that's another reason why they're not human, because we know that you can't eat your own kind, cannibalistic uh, practices eventually end up in major health problems. But if they're yes. slightly different, you can. You can. Ugh. So Yeah, we become more on the food one. chain for them. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and we also know that traditional history and lots of these large museums are covering things up. And I have a friend whose grandfather invented the Bell helicopter, and he was very much into lots of paranormal things, uh, real genius. And he got his hands on a lot of the artifacts from Acumbara, Mexico, where they had dinosaurs and people together in these figurines. And he had yeah. a lot of them, and he, was, he wanted to donate them to a major museum, and the museum refused to take them because they said it didn't go along with their timeline of how things happened. I mean, how ridiculous is that? So he couldn't donate them. They wouldn't. They just refused to. But here, are these these artifacts. I don't know if you've ever seen them, but they're very different from anything else that I've ever seen come out of Mexico. Very well, detailed. And they're like stegosaurus dinosaurs, and yep. how could they know what these dinosaurs look like? Well, in my new book, Beyond Esoteric, I have a chapter called Suppressed Human Origin. And in the, the photos in the end of the chapter, uh, I have a photo of the Paluxy River in Glen Rose, Texas, where human and dinosaur footprints were found in the same layer of dried clay. And again, this doesn't fit with any uh, evolutionary theory or historical model of humans living concurrently with dinosaurs. But like those artifacts in Mexico, like the footprints found in Texas, and also what Edgar Casey said, that during the time of Atlantis, one of his readings, he was recounting how the Atlanteans were trying to solve the problem of all the dinosaurs that were living on the planet and were still vexing the Atlanteans and other humans 
in uh, going about their lives. So they had to kill off all the remaining dinosaurs. And in my other book, Future Esoteric, I have a chapter on cryptozoology, all the, the creatures that aren't recognized through normal zoological studies. But there's this photo from Tombstone, Arizona, of these cowboys in, in the 1800s. And they're holding a pterodactyl, just as you would recognize out of our dinosaur children's books with the big, elongated beak and the big, long yeah. wings. And there's like eight guys holding this thing up uh, for a photo that, that was in the newspaper. And it was a big thing. So this gives some clues to the Thunderbirds of Native American legend and a lot of other uh, stories of these mythological dinosaur-like creatures that pop yeah, up all so, the time. There's, there's so much that gets dismissed out of hand when it really is a part of our history. And the other thing that I find concerning when these objects especially just get uh, you know, dismissed as fake or whatever, I'll tell you this. Um, this gentleman who I mentioned before had ended up with these artifacts because the museum wouldn't take them. Right. And he had them in his office, and he ended up packing them away because they really creeped him out, which nothing really creeped this guy out because he was into the paranormal, right? These things creeped him out. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> he ended up uh, bringing them to a scientist in, Os- I believe it was Ossing, Ossling in New York, and she took two of them, two of these figurines that were called creator gods, and they had fluted ears, and, you know, they they did not look human. She put them in cages with mice. The next day, she came into the lab, and the mice had fluted ears. Wow. Just like statuary. So, yeah, I mean, there's so much to to what these things are. I mean, they're so different, you know, than anything else, any other figures that came out of Mexico. They obviously have some level of consciousness themselves. So right. very interesting, isn't it? Well, and those are those are the, the clay figurines. They're, they're like uh, three-dimensional small little statuaries, correct? Yes, because they are. And... Well, they're all in the museum, I believe, a lot of them, that, but that's in Mexico, not here. But the gentleman that owns them, he passed them on to his uh, relative, and so they are still packed away today. But, yeah, I mean, that story I really struck me. It's like, wow, here is something. It reminds me of what we started talking about, you know, um, the Ark of Michael and, you know, how many of these things are around and yet we have no clue as to how they work, what they are. It's We're so clueless about these things. Yeah, we really are. And when these artifacts come up, uh, the authorities who just don't want to deal with them are so quick to just stash them away and deny their existence and really give them the, the light of day and the attention they really deserve. Because also out of Mexico, not only – in one location, but in several very dense jungle remote locations in some of these caves, they found these, these uh, carved 
shown alien faces and UFOs where sometimes a beam of light is coming out from the UFO and either aliens are are, uh, coming down in the beam or people are beaming up. Have you seen that collection? I I have not seen that collection. John D'Souza knows about them, and there's a gentleman named Ray Hernandez who has some of them and comes to conferences, and I've seen them. I've held them in my hands. And they're just remarkable, not only the craftsmanship that went into them, but the sheer quantity of them. There are literally hundreds of these. And I've seen a a video at the last conference where uh, Ray Hernandez spoke. He went to one of these caves on an expedition, and he filmed it the whole way, including when they got to the cave. And you could tell how sweaty and tired they all were. It was quite a hike to get there and they're in the cave and the the film is still rolling and they're flipping over rocks and kind of snooping around and eventually they find some brand new stashes of these stones and you could see that they're well deep in the mud and packed in there and the weight of the stone on top of them is like they're not faking this come on and then they pull it out and they wash it off and here's another one of these really amazingly carved pieces and and I have some images of them in Beyond Esoteric to show people and once again nobody uh, will have anything to do with it. In fact the Mexican government had a collection of them since the 1930s. They didn't say anything about it. They didn't reveal them. Then all of a sudden uh, about 10 years ago they just said we're going to release them as is. You make what you will of them. We're not going to say what we think they are, but this is where they were located. We've just been sitting on them since the 1930s, and here you go. My goodness. Huge collection. Uh, yeah. I'm going to have to look those up so I can see them and, and look at the pictures in your book because, yeah, this is this is all very, very interesting. There's so much hidden, and we really deserve to know a lot more about all of these these events and all of these things going on. Now, you've been to a lot of UFO conferences recently, and you've been to Contact in the Desert. And What's new in the UFO field? What's going on these days? Yeah, and that's a great question, and I'm always very interested in the latest findings, too. I've had the great opportunity to be asked to moderate panels, most often with uh, the super soldiers, or or as they like to be known as enhanced soldiers, Mm -hmm. uh, that several of which have been part of the uh, 20 and back program, the secret space program, uh, including Tony Rodriguez, who just happened to be my, uh, in the hotel room with me, we doubled up. And I was fine. I knew he was going to be there. And we, we became really good friends. He's very articulate, I think, among some of the most articulate of them, including James Rink, Penny Bradley, uh, and Eric Hecker was on our panel. I'm going to moderate the Super Soldier panel at uh, the UFO Mega Conference in March next year. And we're adding uh, Michael Jaco is going to be on that panel as well. So I go into this, I'm a journalist, I'm a researcher, 
I'm just very curious in these subjects, like you. And and I just mm-hmm. ask really pertinent questions because I want to get to the bottom of it too. So I think what the super soldiers are bringing forth is really the cutting edge. Because if you think about it, if we're up there in space, this breakaway civilization, and when they come back, the common denominator is they all have their memory swiped. And through regressive hypnotherapy, Lori McDonald is a colleague of mine. She does it in Sacramento, Barbara Lamb. Uh, Dolores Cannon used to do it when she was still alive. To get right. these memories to come back. And what they've reported, like uh, Randy Kramer, uh, just incredible what they've experienced in the last few decades off planet. So I think that's really yeah, the Randy, edge. Randy's been on the show a couple of times talking about his experiences and the colonies that do exist on Mars. And that, I find it fascinating. I don't doubt what he's saying. There's his, his whole experience, when he talks about it, is extremely detailed. And when you ask Randy a question, he answers it immediately without even giving it a second thought. So the audience really enjoyed hearing from Randy about being a super soldier and also some of the life forms that he encountered on Mars. Um, So in terms of abductions, let's talk about that for a minute. It seemed like the abductions tapered off. There were a lot of them going on for a period of time, and then in the 80s, they they seemed to just not stop, but there were a lot less after the 80s. So what's your experience with this? Are you hearing new abduction stories, or is it still kind of on the wing? It's kind of on the wing, but I think it also ties into what a lot of these super soldiers who have been off-planet are reporting, and that is they're is a huge profit in human trafficking. As hard as this is to hear, uh, one common denominator of a lot of these individuals who have done what they call the programs and 20 and back had their memory swiped. One thing they remember is that there are often people who are also being abducted and going off planet and never to return. It could be that a lot of the abductive cases, I mean, we're still at, in America alone, this is on the FBI data list, 40,000 Americans go missing every year in this country. Uh, And then you think worldwide, it's in the hundreds of thousands of people go missing every year. Now, of course, some of those are runaways and some of those are uh, human trafficked in brothels and, and whatnot else, but some of them... Uh, according to the super soldiers who have worked off planet are being exported and shipped off and never to come back. So it could be that they just don't need to return them anymore to their bodies as abductees would often say, or I don't know, maybe they're they're using them perhaps. Yeah. They could be using them and, you know, for work or slavery or whatever. Yeah. Which is very troubling. So, yeah, and 40,000 just in the U.S. alone is a huge number. So that's interesting that the super soldiers are saying that that's what they remember is seeing people being taken off world and used for some purpose unbeknownst to whatever. 
and I, and I should preface it by saying I'm, I read people. I'm empathic, and I and I when I'm face to face with someone, I think I can be a pretty good judge if they're telling a whopper or if they're really emotionally charged. And I'll tell you this, Patricia, they are sometimes close to tears, and these are sometimes big macho guys who are saying, yeah. we saw these people in cages. We knew they weren't coming back. They were crying out for help. There was nothing we can mm. do. And when you see their face and you see the emotional charge that comes from relating that story, it's very believable. And, and I do believe that they're telling the truth. And it's, it's very traumatic to have to recount that knowing that what they're saying is, yeah, I saw it happening, but there was nothing I can do. And I felt like now maybe in retrospect, I wish there was something I could have done, maybe broken ranks and and freed someone who was crying out for help, but they couldn't and they didn't. And that's why Mm -hmm. they feel that emotional charge. Yeah. And it matches also what some abductees have shared. I mean, the Carl Higdon story, which is one of the best, in my opinion, because there was real proof that he was he had an off-world experience. But he also talked about in the ship there were these very bright lights. His, his vision was very blurry, but he saw other people there, humans, in the ship that weren't going to be returned. He was returned, but he knew these other people probably were not going to be returned. So that's very difficult, I think, very emotional for anybody who's been it through is. that. And and it's also a version of selling out the human race. You're you're seeing your own fellow humans who are going to have a pretty rough next few years of their lives, uh, sold into slavery, sold into prostitution. Apparently, the Earth women are still uh, the hottest thing this side of the universe, and then there is actually <laughs> EC uh, human women prostitution. Uh, this is what. Tony Rodriguez says when he was on the, the small planet called Ceres, which is part of the asteroid belt, and he said there mm-hmm. is a base inside of that small planetoid in which he was, during his time, um, he wasn't a super soldier, but he was recruited as a child with these missing years that he's finally gotten his memory back, but during his free time on series, he could take a monorail through the town and there was this red light district in a, a particular brothel where he was allowed as a youngster, not participating, but just to observe. And he got to know some of the earth women who were prostitutes. And he would say that, um, that they're really uh, mind bent when they would be with extraterrestrials because they're so incredibly telepathic that they would give these women hope that they would be back to rescue them and they never did come back. Never did. And, yeah, so not only were they being used physically, but they would really get uh, worked up telepathically and mentally. And basically he said that they eventually would just lose it and they would just go absolutely crazy and couldn't couldn't handle it after a while. Yeah, I can understand that. Life is over and then they just have to – get rid of the the corpses which out in outer space i don't think is that hard yeah yeah isn't that a a horrible story and yet i 
makes sense because so many people do go missing, never to be seen again, and so many abductees have talked about seeing other people. In fact, Betty Andreessen talked about it. She saw people from different periods in history um, in in these glass cases. And Marianne Shenefield, whose case uh, doesn't get talked about much, but it's one of the best ones ever, and she also was taken aboard a craft where they were very friendly to her and treated her differently. But when she looked around, she saw, you know, the bodies of humans, and she asked about them. And they assured her that what she was looking at was someone who died on a battlefield, and they did not end this person's life. But so many have reported seeing this on ships, something like yeah. that. Do you remember the case of the Aztec crash in the late 1940s? It was yes. right after Roswell. And yes. Bill Cooper, William Cooper, would talk about it in his lectures. And he said one of the main reasons why they had to hush up tire UFO enigma is because at the crash at Aztec, New Mexico, when they recovered the craft and looked inside, what they found was human parts. And they uh. thought, the military brass thought that this would be so traumatic and so disturbing to the American people that they absolutely had to hush it up at all costs. And that's why still to this day, UFOs are top secret. And you know, now we're getting this little dribble out of uh, the Tic Tac video or this or that, but <clears throat> nothing of real substance, as you know, uh, ever no, comes out of government. Closure. No, What's because there's no upside for them to come clean on any of this. There's there's no benefit to them, and as long as there's no benefit to them, they're not going to tell us what's really happening. And <clears throat> again, it would be, I think, totally embarrassing to them if another nation, another great power like Russia or even China, came out and and told the truth about UFOs, I think the United States would be humiliated even more than it is today over this whole topic. But I know also, according yeah. to some shamans that have been on the show from Peru, that their countries have been threatened by the U.S. If you talk about what you know about UFOs, then we'll withdraw all of your funding, all of it. Yep. So, yeah. you know, they... They learned to shut their mouths and not talk about the craft that landed when 300 journalists witnessed it, you know, all of these big events. So we don't usually hear about them unless we get somebody like a shaman on the show to talk about it. Right. So, Is that what it takes? Yeah, we've got to get a shaman on to get the real truth here. You have to, to tell us what's really going on in South America. Yes. So, it, yes, very frustrating and again, it goes back to even Eisenhower, right? Didn't wasn't he supposed to be the one that made the first contract with U with UFO uh, alien people and said we're not going to tell the American people what's happening? And yes, you have the right to take certain number of of our people right. as abductees, but of course it went way over whatever they discussed and. Agreed to, and of course, what is the government going to do about it? Nothing but cover it up. Exactly, and isn't it interesting that what we give in exchange for the high technology, and that's called the Griotta Treaty, 
which is renewed every 10 years on the fourth year of the decade, that what we give to them is human trafficking, is bodies. That's yeah. what they want the that's most. Disgusting. It's and that's, disgusting. I'm sure, what the and government so doesn't want us secret. to know. That's the core secret, what they consider the hardest pill to swallow and why they have to keep the entire thing covered up. It makes total sense, you know. It's logical to think that that's the reason why they keep it all undercover. It makes sense. And it's, I mean, look at even how Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell, who's now going on trial for human trafficking, look at how that got covered up. Look at how all the elites that went down there and politicians, how that was just always just shoved under the rug. Had he not been so blatant and so overt and such a sex addict to continue his ways till finally they had to bring him on trial, he'd probably still be doing it down there on uh, Little St. James Island and the American in the American Virgin Islands. One of our territories is where this yeah. guy was getting away with it for decades. So well, absolutely, it, it's a big right. It's huge. It's a real big problem. It's absolutely huge. But let me ask you this, Brad, because you've been researching for so many years and you've been around the world talking to so many people. Why do you think now they're dribbling out this stuff about sightings? Yes, we know that these things are flying around in our skies. Why are they dribbling this out now? What's motivating them? Because really they don't have to, but they did. Why? So remember one of the biggest paperclip Nazis that came over right after World War II? In fact, I have a picture of him wearing his SS uniform in Penamunde, Germany, is Werner von Braun. Von Braun he was that right. best. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even though oftentimes he'd be seen in his civilian clothes with the officers, he was SS, and that was an occult uh, secret society. Uh, among the elite of the German brass in in World War II. He came over here, and he headed up Nassau, and he was mostly responsible for the Mercury and then the Apollo moon missions. So why why is this being covered up? Well, it's partly the fault of the paperclip Nazis, because they were still loyal and allied to what was then Third Reich evaporated after the war. But the Third Reich, being the political party of Germany, you've got to understand the fighting forces of Germany surrendered. So the Luftwaffe, which was their air force, and the Wehrmacht was the army and the navy, they all surrendered. But the Third Reich never surrendered. The Third Reich went underground and became the Fourth Reich, and that's what we're right. still, still dealing with today. So when you think about the NASA scientists, uh, not only them, but <clears throat> the MK Ultra uh, psychiatrists yeah. came over right mm-hmm. to uh, right over into our secret space program. That's why it's spelled MK. That's the German spelling for control. K O N T R O L L E. Mind control uh-huh. ultra. Mind control Naomi is now uh, coming to the surface. Naomi is the mass medicating, the mass uh, vaccinating 
of people. And now we see that starting to happen. But these are programs that have been happening for decades. And only now, why is it only coming out now? Well, it's not really coming out now. It's sort of being forced out while they're kicking and screaming to hold on to their secrets. But Mm -hmm. so many of us know, and I know you have a very sophisticated listening audience that understands that we've known about UFOs and their existence for many years, many decades. We don't need the government to tell us because disclosure is now coming out organically. Disclosure is coming from the bottom up, and we don't even need the government anymore to tell us. But I'll tell you, I think the reason why that they are starting to even come into mainstream media, I think they're prepping us for Project Bluebeam, for the fake alien invasion, which, according to Carol Rosen, who was the assistant to Werner von Braun, he, on his deathbed, confession to Carol Rosen would say, this is their final play. This is the globalist final uh chance for this new world order is that the the one way they can get everybody freaked out and afraid and when we're in a fear state we don't think rationally and look holographic technology is very well advanced uh was it tupac shakur and michael jackson were going on tour as holograms Uh, you'd see it and you'd think it's total real life so They have the technology to do this fake alien invasion, and they're probably priming us a little bit at a time. So if there ever was and they put it out there, we'd all believe it, but it'd be fake. Mm -hmm. And even Randy Kramer, uh, he wrote about it in his book, and he told me personally that uh, they will do it and even use some of the technology that has been sequestered away, and we'll see some real – uh, flights and some fake holograms, but he said it's all going to be staged, including that Randy Kramer told me this, that they have an agreement with an insectoid race who would even oh, yeah. catch a bunch of clone aliens to get blown away so little body parts would be falling all over, but they <laughs> would be part of the, the whole fake alien invasion too, just to make it so very realistic. So yeah, he, why he do I think that, that the um, government is offering up anything and it's only that there yeah, is an agenda? Yeah, probably just to support that. Yeah. Yep. Well, it makes sense totally what you're agree. saying. And, I, you know, when Randy was on the show, he was talking about it. They said, they, so what are these aliens going to look like? And then he told us the insectoids, like six, seven feet tall, that would freak everybody yeah. out. And uh, so I said they couldn't couldn't use the Pleiadians, the good-looking ones, right? They had to use the insectoids. <laughs> like, yeah. Of course. So, but he did. He also said the technology that they would use in, an, if should they go ahead with a horrible event like that, um, the technology they already have would be used against us, and there would be multiple deaths. I mean, many people would be wiped out to prove their point in this, and that's again, sure. it's like. <laughs> This government, they are not. They're not helping us. Let's put it that way. Um, it's a real, and, and, it's a real look, shame. But life is cheap on this planet. Life is Apparently. cheap. I mean, we were talking about human trafficking on the dark web when the whole Silk Road dark web was exposed a few years ago. Uh, not only could you buy any kind of drugs or weapons you want on the dark web, but you could put a hit on someone for a thousand dollars. You hate your oh neighbor. My God. 
pay a thousand bucks on the dark web and somebody will come by and kill the guy when he's shopping at Walmart. So life is cheap on this planet. They don't care about us so much. And so, yeah, look, false flags sometimes go live and real people do die, but there's still mm-hmm. false flag events and they think life is cheap. So yeah, sure. If there's some, what do they call it? Collateral damage. There's some collateral yeah. damage with a right. fake alien invasion. Well, so be it. That's the cost of Yeah, that's their mindset. Their no question. Yeah, yeah. It, it is yeah. their mindset. And it's just so disturbing. And it's surprising to me that so many people just don't get it. They 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 hear what what they're being told to do and they just do it. Rather than looking at all of the pieces of this puzzle and making better decisions. It's it's really surprising to me. Maybe it shouldn't be, but it is. <laughs> so yeah. it, it, I don't it's know sad, if you're really. as surprised yeah. as I am, but so much of this yeah. is this happening. But the the upside is more and more people are, are starting to wake up and see it for what it is and see that the news media in this country is propaganda. I think it's funny the old uh saying in Russia, when they had Pravda during the Soviet eras, and then they they chide us with this now. They say, "Well, you Americans, you know, back in the Russian days of of the Soviet Union, we knew Pravda was propaganda, but you Americans, you don't <laughs> yeah. even know you're being propagandized." That's but now right. people are waking up and seeing what fake news really is. And that's so that's, that's good. why alternative shows like yours and my books and. And this kind of thing is becoming more and more popular because people are starting to wake up and realize, hey, there's yeah. a big picture and, people would, and we're not getting it. Yeah. Yeah, people people so, are yeah. starting to uh, open their eyes a little bit more, but it, it needs to happen a lot faster. But this has been a great conversation with you, Brad, about so many of your experiences. And I give you credit. You're pretty courageous traveling all the way down to Antarctica in a boat. <laughs> so yeah. that's amazing. But next time I do hope you'll take the plane. It sounds a little little better <laughs> <laughs> than your sailboat in rough seas. Oh, my gosh. But, again, I, I really appreciate you sharing so much of what you found out and your knowledge about this, this whole arena it's it's really great that you know so much about it all. Oh, well, thank you for having me on. And you always know it's a great interview when an hour and a half just goes by with a snap of a finger. So thank <laughs> you has. for giving me the opportunity to talk. And we should certainly do it again because, boy, we well, didn't even talk about no. the Battle of High Jump or the Black Goo or so many other things. I know. We didn't even to. get to the goo. And do you have another <laughs> book in the works? Uh, not currently, just because Beyond Esoteric only just came out this year and still doing a lot to promote that. People want to find out more about what I'm up to, and you mentioned it in the intro, the How Weird Street Fair I produce here in San Francisco, and um, I publish other authors, and we've just picked up Michael Jaco, the Intuitive Warrior series, and Laura Eisenhower is going to have three books coming out through CCC Publishing. So oh, would great. Alert your, alert your listeners to go check that out, all my books and other 
authors that we publish, including Leo Lyons-Agami and Lon Milo Duquette and several others, are on cccpublishing.com. Oh, love him. He's great, isn't he? Oh, my God, I, I love him. He, is, he and Constance, oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> They're awesome. Just an incredible talent. We've had Lon on the show so many times, and every time we end up laughing so hard, but learning so much at the same time. All of his books are phenomenal. So, yeah, he's one of the highlights on our show and will always be. But, Brad, thank you again for taking your time to join me tonight and to enlighten our listeners. This has been great, and wish you a happy Thanksgiving. Well, happy Thanksgiving to you, too, and hopefully your uh, co-pilot gets better. Hoping and wishing her well. Maybe she's listening now. Thank and, you. Uh, yeah. Well, thank you. Maybe next time you'll get to meet her. We definitely want to have, I definitely want to have you back. And uh, next week, everybody, we will have Michelle Claire on. She is a great psychic medium. And don't forget to tune in. And if you'd like a reading, guess what? You can have one. So in the meantime, everybody, have a great Thanksgiving. Eat a lot of wonderful food, especially pies. And... Until then, I'll see you on the Blue Highway. Good night, everyone. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week for another radio adventure with Supernatural.